She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I am Sarah Gorski, and I am here again with my friend Elise Ballard. Hi, Elise. Hi there, Sarah. Elise, um, last week you were telling us about your amazing great-grandmother, Edith. But for audiences who haven't heard your voice yet and gotten to know you, who do you think is your favorite broad of all time? Oh my gosh, that is so hard. Oh my goodness. You know, I still think Oprah is one of my heroines and like a trailblazer of what she's been able to do. Also, it's so weird, but Dr. Ruth West, how do I say her last name? Westheimer? Oh, I don't know. There's this great documentary on Hulu about her, but she she has overcome so much and like has such a great attitude. And she was the first person to talk about sex on the air. Um, oh, Dr. man. Ruth, Dr. Ruth, you know. And then, of course, my great grandmother was a great broad. I like to, I don't know. Those are great choices. There's no right or wrong answer. When we ask people their favorite broad, there's no right or wrong answer because it's different for every person. Who are yours? Who is your favorite one? Oh my gosh. I never can pick. But my favorite broad of like today of like these days has been like AOC has been one of my big ones. Alexander Mm. Tocqueville-Cortez. I think she's great. But anyway, this episode's not about me. This episode is about my broad who I brought in. So I want to start with talking about how I found her. So I've been wanting to talk about this broad since I first stumbled upon her. It was about a year ago and I was scrolling through my, my stupid social media feeds and this really visceral painting pops up and it's a black and white painting or a picture of a painting. It's a two headed naked woman being harassed by these two men from behind. Do you see it? Can you see the I picture? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that It's on a self-portrait, is it? Well, so this painting shows up and I'm like, oh my gosh, this two-headed naked woman. I'm like, what? And it turns out that this picture is an x-ray of a painting done in Italy in 1610. And apparently it was really common in that time for artists to make painting revisions on top of the original canvas. So the picture, this picture that we're looking at is basically two different versions of the same painting. And the name of the painting is Susanna and the Elders. It's derived from a story in the Bible from the book of Daniel. And this woman, Susanna, is having, is like bathing in her garden. And these two older men approach her and tell her that if she doesn't yield to them sexually, that they Mm. will spread rumors about her promiscuity. And so this painting is like capturing that moment. That was in the Bible? I don't remember that in the Bible, but what do I I don't remember it either, but apparently, I think it's like one of the ones the Presbyterians cut out. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so too, yeah. Or like, you know, they just happen to miss. So, okay, so this is, so this second picture that you're looking at is like the quote final version of the painting, which, you know, whoever was the person that bought the painting and had on display and what's been in museums and stuff, right? And it has this naked Susanna sitting on a bench and she's like leaning away from these two guys behind this like half wall and they're whispering her in her ear and to each other like conspiratorially. But if you look at that first version in the x-ray, so the original version that she painted shows the men grabbing her hair and wrenching her head back 
back and Susanna is like screaming. And this x-ray version was part of this artist display. She was doing like a, a gallery and she did an x-ray so we could find these like original versions. And that was in like 1998 or something like this. But this right. black and white painting is the one that has me fascinated. And the version, the original version that it's not like this kind of demure Susanna that's like, you know, looking away. It's like the Susanna who's literally being raped, right? Yeah. And I was like, who is the woman that painted this painting? And then, like, not only did she paint this original painting, but then she decided, oh, I better soften it up for my audience. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, do we know, like, why she changed it? Or did, do you think it was just that? Or she couldn't sell it? Well, I don't she- know that we're going to know. Like, we don't have, like, private journals about, you know, what exactly she did. But that's the broad I'm talking about today is the woman who painted this painting. And her name is Artemisia Gentileschi. Love it. I don't know if it's Artemisia or Artemisia. I'm not really sure how I saw both pronunciations, but she's Italian and she is definitely a broad that I feel like everybody should know about. So that is our broad today. That's like the preface and how I got introduced to her. So now I want to just talk about her. So she was born Artemisia Lomi Gentileschi on July 8, 1593 in Rome. And she's the oldest child of Prudencia de Ottaviano Montoni and Orazio Gentileschi. And the latter, her dad, was a painter from Pisa and a pretty successful one. And he was said to have been painting in the style of Caravaggio. So I think a lot of people know the name Caravaggio as a very specific style of painting. Right. A very He was like a, like a super, super famous Italian painter. And he was particularly famous for like not airbrushing the shit out of all of his paintings. So instead of like having these like beautiful, demure, soft light, he painted in like harsh light with shadows. And there's like, they they describe it as like, quote, powerful and realistic drama is kind of this style of painting. You know, personally, I'm a, a much bigger fan of that really bold style than those like pretty demure, soft mouthed, you know, Anyway, so uh, Artemisia had three younger brothers, and at the age of 12, her mother dies in childbirth. And basically, Artemisia becomes like the principal caregiver for her her family, right? She didn't receive any formal academic education. She kind of was like illiterate, like functionally illiterate until later in her 20s, and she eventually had the, you know, got the opportunity to learn to read and write. But she always kind of sucked at it. So like some of these articles are like, oh, yeah, her spelling was terrible always. And she wasn't as well read as some of some of the other ladies at her time. But as a child, because and her dad was still alive, she was allowed to draw. And she was apparently naturally very, very skilled at it. Uh, and at one point, her dad writes to one of his patrons, the Grand Duchess of Tuscany. He writes to her and says, quote, she in three years becomes so skilled that I can venture to say today she has no peer So she very quickly becomes very good at painting. She did an apprenticeship under her father's studio. And he was like friends with Caravaggio and all these other famous artists. Um, And because she like was in this inner circle of like already famous painters, she was able to kind of visit all these churches and buildings where all of these paintings are displayed. Because back then, you know, they you couldn't just like Google <laughs> the paintings and see them. Yeah. And, and, you know, I noticed that some, I think it's interesting because like she couldn't have done what she did without a father who was supportive of that and to help her, you know, and that was the same even with women here in, ni- in the early 1900s. All the women that were doctors that I had talked about, all of them had a strong male support. 
because of yeah. the way women were treated. They had a, either a brother, a husband, or a father who very much influenced them and supported them and encouraged them. And it sounds like she had that back in the 1500s. Otherwise, she could have never done what she did. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and so basically, like the articles I found said that because she had access and she could see all these paintings, she literally saw some a few Caravaggio paintings in person, mm-hmm. and which most people of that time period didn't, right? She also had access to her dad's like materials and she could like use their models. She herself even was was said to have sat for her dad for a few paintings. There's one painting called Young Woman with a Violin, which he painted around 1612. And it's said to kind of like resemble her features. So they think it was mm, her. That would make sense. Yeah. So she starts, I mean, she just kind of goes to town starting to paint after the style of her dad. And she paints that painting that we opened with, Susanna and the Elder. She paints that around 1611, or actually 1610, I think. How old is she at that point? I forgot exactly which date you said she was born. She is born in 1593. Oh, so she's still really young. So she's 17. Wow. She's a child. She's a child, but she's painting as well as her dad, at least. That's like Picasso. Picasso was like a prodigy too. She's an absolute prodigy. But here's what is like the most, so if you Google her, the the biggest news story about her at the time period Mm -hmm. is that in 1611, which is a year after she painted her first Susanna and the Elders, she is raped by one of the artists who was studying with her father. So there's this guy, he's this guy named Augustino Tassi. He was apparently a friend of her dad's. He like is able to like get her alone and take advantage of her. This has been recorded for history, and we we know this. This is wild. Yes, because the reason we know so much about this big event is that her father decided to take him to court. Oh, good for him! Because she had quote lost her virginity, right? To him, and that was considered the woman's high. One of the women's highest value was to was their their virginity, was their you know their pureness. And so right. Tassi, when he raped her, he stole that from her father. He stole that value from her dad. So he took him to court, and Artemisia had to testify. And there is all of this these direct quotes from the trial. So uh, at first, Tassi is like, don't worry, I'll marry you. And Artemisia was like, oh, okay, then I guess we can continue to have a relationship. So she actually ended up kind of being in a relationship with this man who had who had raped her until it becomes really clear that he has no intention of, of marrying her. And at that point, her dad's like, okay, we're going to sue this guy. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Like, it's between the two men. <laughs> like, she's like property. Unbelievable. Yeah. So it so when they take him to trial, there's this official recorded trial. There's a very vivid account where she recalls this this rape in in the public court, and also at the time to to ensure that women were not lying about their testimony, they actually kind of torture her while she's on trial. They like tie these cords around her to cause pain. And like cinch these cords so that in case she's lying, she'll confess like, oh, no, it's a lie. So she's at court. She's confessing this very vivid rape scene uh, that happened to her. And she's being like tortured while she does it. Oh, my God. She does not, you know, let the, the torture sway her. She continues with her testimony. And then she also says that he immediately told her after the rape that he would marry her. 
she reported, quote, she felt with this good promise, I felt calmer because she knew she wasn't going to be screwed over. Like her life wasn't going to be ruined by this event if he, if he planned to, to do good by her, right? So even though they like tortured her for her testimony, she would not relent her side of the story. There's a quote from her at trial, like while these cords are being like tightened around her, she says, it is true, it is true, it is true. And then she addresses in this trial, she addresses Tassie directly. And she says, this is the ring that you give me. And these are your promises. Referring to like the torture, like the the cords that are being wrapped around her, right? Oh my gosh, so barbaric. And she's 18 at this point, huh? She is, she's seven, I think she's 17 at this point. She's only 17, 17. or 18. Mm-hmm. And at this trial, as a result of her testimony, Tassie is found guilty. Oh. And he's sentenced to a really brief period of exile, oh. which he basically, like no one follows through with. So he's basically not punished. And it emerges like in the in the trial, it also comes out that he actually was already married so that he couldn't marry her. But she's still in this like really tenuous position. And her dad's like, okay, we just need to marry you off. So he arranges for her to marry this guy named Pierantonio Stiatesi. Um, and he is another artist, but not quite as famous in Florence. And uh, I guess he also was the brother of one of the guys who testified against Tassi in the trial, who was one of her dad's friends. This, this whole like artist, I like get the sense of this like artist community in this, like they all were like friends. And in fact, like her dad is the reason that Tassi would have been in their house in the first place and that he was like learning from him. And then this guy rapes his daughter. So mm. this is like gross, so gross. Art, artist upon artist violence. So anyway, mm-hmm. she she ends up marrying this other guy though, and it kind of allows her for the first time in her life now, she has kind of a sense of independence. And apparently her husband was kind of like, I think this article called him quote something of a non-entity. <laughs> so she could do whatever she wanted. So they were like married, but that she kind of was able to do what she wanted and she like was then taken care of, right? So she's out from under her father's studio and she now like has this sense of of liberty. And so she moves to Florence with her husband in 1612, and she sets up a studio in the house of her father-in-law, who was a tailor. Eventually, she manages to to also move into a studio, like her own studio, where she can do more large-scale canvases and bigger stuff. And she starts to paint a ton. She does a bunch of self-portraits. Listeners, I'm going to have all these paintings on the website as well. You can check them out there, or you can Google them. She already had a lot of connections in terms of, you know, her dad already was painting for these really famous people. And so I think, you know, I'm sure that that kind of helped the connections that she was able to make then. So she ends up painting for the Grand Duke Cosimo II de Medici. So Medici is like a huge Italian famous name. (laughs) Yeah, they were huge art patrons. Yeah, Huge patrons. Mm -hmm. And as she's painting, in the middle of her like abundant artistic career, she also has five children. Wow. Between 1613 and 1618. One a year. <laughs> yeah, from the age of like 19 to 29, she has five children, but three of them die in her in their infancies. Uh, a fourth, he dies before the age of five, and only one child, her daughter Prudencia, named after her mother, actually lives into adulthood. Oh, wow. But in the middle of all this, she's still painting. She doesn't like take off time. She's like doing these huge and famous canvases. Uh, One of the articles I found, there was this really great New Yorker article uh, about her actually. And uh, it was talking about how 
years later, like 20 years after she was done with her childbearing days, she was commissioned to paint the birth of St. John the Baptist but from Philip IV of Spain. <laughs> they said that the painting itself has this like really intimate view of like what the birthing room is like. Because usually the painters were dudes and they weren't there in the in the birthing room, right? And I think this is familiar with all her work, that there's this side of all her paintings that's this intimate view of the women's life and what it actually was like. And in the sense of, especially when we like look at this painting of Susanna, right? This moment of terror where these men are coming after you that she was so familiar with. And and she painted her first Susanna before she had, had been raped. But certainly, and this is what all the articles about her say, is that all of her work was deeply affected by that experience. Of course, right. So she paints in Florence for like six, six or seven years. And then she comes back to Rome eventually, I think around 1624. Um, and it also sounds like at that point, her and her husband had kind of split, that she was making enough money that she kind of didn't need him. She goes back to Rome. And in the, the 1620s, she ends up going to Venice as well. Um, so she, I think, you know, as an artist, they're always in search of new clients. I mean, we call them clients now, they call them patrons, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she ends up in 1630 settling down in Naples. She gets commissions from, like her her history of paintings is commissions for all these super, super famous people uh, across the whole continent. So Infanta Maria of Spain was one of her uh, patrons. She used to like send, apparently one of the ways she got clients was by sending them beautiful gloves, which I thought was really funny. So you some send people gifts and then get them interested in you and, and uh, then they hire That's you. That's very to today. <laughs> it is very today. It's very today. I mean, I think it's so interesting in the 1600s, she could just leave her husband because she was making enough money. I mean, I didn't know you could do that in the 1600s. That's so interesting. People generally didn't, right? And so she's really kind of a an anomaly, I think, and because she was making enough money, she was such a good artist. And did she live a, a, an extravagant lifestyle? Do we know, or is it just like a middle class kind of lifestyle? But you just get to paint, and do what you want, so it's completely an amazing lifestyle, or? You know, the, the articles I was looking up didn't talk much about that at all. Right. I, I would say based my, my impression based on like all the stories of her is that she wasn't poor. But then she also like there's records of her paying overdue tax bills and stuff like that. So I think like as with many artists careers, there's like ups and downs. Right. And mm -hmm. so at some point she was making a ton of money. And then I think there were also times that were a little bit leaner. She was like typical bourgeois middle class artist. Yeah. Well, and she also like, so I think one of the, one of the big themes about her and like all these articles talk about her also is that she, she was also a woman that was like very in touch with sensuality and sexuality in a way that like women of the time period really kind of weren't uh, hmm. publicly. And at one point they, they find there's like a series of letters were discovered between her and this man who she was having it seems like an affair the way that they treat it. So when she was in Florence, apparently, she had this like torrid affair with this guy named Francesco Maria Maringhi, who was a nobleman in Florence. And she was in her mid-20s at this point and like five years into her marriage. And there's all these letters that they discover where she like wrote him calling him my dearest heart. And at some point she like yells at him for only writing to her two lines to her and says, which if you loved me would have gone on forever. 
Um, and then she also in another letter referred to a self-portrait that he had of her and tells him not to masturbate in front of him. <laughs> like, what? They had this like oh. racy affair, right? And that and then in another letter she says that she hopes that he has not taken any other lovers. Uh, and so there, it's just like they discover these letters. And then I, when these letters were first discovered, which actually was late, it was in, I think, 2011. But suddenly this woman who seemed like such a genteel woman is like revealed to be like, oh, no, actually, she was like pretty sexy. And if you look at her paintings, they are like some of them are very sexy. There's like a painting. One of her paintings is titled Mary Magdalene in Ecstasy. You know, Mary Magdalene has this look on her face. And you're like, that's a woman who knows what sex is. That is a woman who knows what ecstasy is, right? And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when you look at other painters of the period, they just really don't, they don't, I don't, I don't think they fully ever express kind of that side of womanhood because they were men, most of them, right? Yeah, exactly. So does she have retrospectives and stuff like that in major museums now? Because if she was in the New Yorker, probably so, right? That New Yorker article came out in 2020. So recently oh. there's been a bunch of retrospectives. So in her lifetime, there's like more than 130 different works that have been attributed to her. There's only about half of them that are like kind of universally agreed to be hers. Because, you know, there's all this back and forth about who painted what. But one of her paintings called Self-Portrait as St. Catherine of Alexandria hung in the National Galleries collection. And that painting, which was recently rediscovered, it, it was acquired by the museum in 2018 for four and a half million dollars. And it is the only 21st century work by a female artist that's in the gallery's collection. So of her time period, she she stands out amongst the giants, you know, like her dad and like Caravaggio. Uh, her paintings were collected by... Uh, the Duke of Tuscany, King Philip IV of Spain, King Charles I of England. There's not a lot known about the end of her life or the date or cause of her death. They said her final un, her final documented act was a payment made on a bill, which was an overbill tax, uh, an overdue tax bill, which was in Naples in 1654, um, and she was said to have been buried in uh, Naples in the church of San Giovanni de Fiorentini. And her grave was marked by a stone inscribed simply Hike Artissima, which is here lies Artissima. But any stone like that has since disappeared since that information was like recorded. And the church itself was destroyed in the 20th century. So there's just not a lot of documentation about the end of her life. But I think the most common theory is that she died around 1656, which is when the plague swept through Naples oh. and killed 150,000 residents, of, which is like half that city's population. So she is thought to have probably died around that time period. So she was like in her 60s. Yeah. And uh, one of her, I'd say like all of her paintings, I think, are so gorgeous. One of my favorites, which I had seen kind of circulate separate from the Susanna painting that we kind of opened with, is called Judith Beheading Halfernes. They need to do, I saw a um, Caravaggio exhibit in Edinburgh when I was there for the Edinburgh Fringe Fest. They should do one of her. You know what I mean? Like, we should have a museum doing a retrospective of her work, it sounds like. I think there have been several. I'm going to send you the link for this one too because it's just like in terms of like female empowerment <laughs> it's like my favorite renaissance painting this is called judith beheading halfernes ah yes 
it's Judith and her maidservant holding him down and basically cutting her head off. And she's like putting her heft into it and going for it. And if you Google like other, cause you know, all these Renaissance painters kind of, they, a lot of them painted these scenes from the Bible. There's other paintings that exist like of this particular Bible story, <laughs> but they all have Judith like kind of just being present or like gingerly gently holding the sword. And here you have Artemisia's painting where Judith is like leaning her weight into it, chopping this guy's head off. And I, and I think, you know, when you read all the articles about her and her life and people like analyzing her work, everyone talks about how those formative years when she was young in her father's studio and when she was raped by Tassie, how that really just informed her experience and kind of brought this kind of strength and forwardness to her work that you just didn't see of other people of the time period, but certainly other women of the time period. And that's all I've got about her. I love it. I'm sure that there's much more. I feel like I only scratched the surface, but isn't she just amazing? She absolutely is. Definitely a broad and a strong broad at that. What do you think of these paintings, Elise? You're looking at these paintings. The audience can't see them while they're listening, but what do you think of them? Like, what's the first thing you think? I would say visceral and powerful. Yeah. And violent. Violent. Yeah. Yes. This painting of Judith has like the blood spouting all over the bed sheets. It's amazing. Yeah. And she's got a look on her face, like taking care of business, like <laughs> almost like she knows what she's doing, you know? And when I say violent, it's violent, but also because she is, it's like she knows what she's doing. Yeah. Well, that's Artemisia Gentileschi. She's like definitely abroad. I'm really glad to know now. And I think her paintings are, I feel like they've been making a bunch of circulation since basically, I think since Me Too. I feel like kind of resurfaced a bunch of this stuff and all these new letters that have been discovered have kind of brought her back into the spotlight Um, because she did really well in her lifetime, but then she was kind of forgotten about afterwards. Yeah. When you can just, when you have letters from that person, it just brings that you get so much insight into their thoughts and the way that they spoke and their personality. It's just such a treasure, you know, to, to be able to find those. I'm so glad that they didn't disappear. I know. And I just love, you know, you think of these, I think, or maybe I, this is just me, but like when you like think of like old times and like the Renaissance, you think of like more proprietary, genteel people. And then when I read like these sexy letters she wrote to her lover, I'm like, fuck yeah, they were just women too. And they just, yeah, they, they were just, just people to too. And- <laughs> <laughs> Having sex and falling in love and hating people that screwed them over and wanting to cut off someone's head for raping you who could blame them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and putting it in your art. Mm-hmm. The the genteel version of history is not usually the most real version. So those those artists that were able to express in real time and to still make a living off of it, so she wasn't you know reviled and hated. Her dad was able to work out that marriage in a way that made her whole life not not suffer from it. And do we know what happened to her child or not? Really, did that child go on to be an artist as well, or we don't really know? You know, I didn't dig into Prudencia and what she ended up doing. I just don't have any information about her. I'm guessing she didn't become famous like her mom, or else I feel like they would have footnoted it in those articles. Yeah, I just think it's amazing that this was this was going on in the 1600s. Yeah, the early 1600s. When women were basically chattel. And I also think it's amazing. I didn't even know artists could like paint it over their own stuff like that. And so you, to see this x-ray version, which I am which I have on the website, listeners, this x-ray version where you can see like two versions of the painting on the same, it's just amazing to me. Oh, and I was going to say, Sarah, you should put the picture of the um, of the room of the birth. Like that'll be, I'd love to see that oh, one. Oh yeah, if, if I'll put them all up there. That. Yeah, I'd be interested to see the intimacy of that room that's 
Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, her paintings are still in circulation and, and they're in collections today. So, Well, thank you for sharing that broad with us. She's amazing yeah. and so well, thank inspiring. You. Thank you for being here. I thought you might like her. I thought she would be a good subject for us. So, Yes, I loved it. Thank you, Elise, for being here. You've been such a great guest. I've been so delighted at the generosity of your, your time and talents. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It is an honor and so much fun. And I love what you're doing. I think you're doing such a service to all of us by sharing all these amazing stories. I love it. I love this podcast. It's a total honor. Thank you. To learn more about Artemisia Gentileschi and see some of her gorgeous paintings, visit broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about Elise Ballard. Her bio and photo and links to all her social and books are all there. Have you followed Broads You Should Know yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest abroad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of Broads You Should Know? If so, you have to help spread the word about us. Tell your friends, tell your family, and leave us a review. Those all help new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you are fascinated by the story of Artemisia Gentileschi, then I recommend you check out some of our other broads as well. You should look into Frida Kahlo, the Mexican painter and revolutionary, Na Ye Sok, the Korean painter and leading feminist, and Julia Tofana, an Italian master poisoner. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>